Hello and welcome to episode 87 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco and thanks for joining us at the Page One Podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips as possible. So how was your week been, Marco? Anything exciting? Uh, I went to see June. Oh. Or should I your... say June Part One, which is not the widely big, The advertised. big secret, I believe. Yes. Uh, no, it's very good. I love Villeneuve's films. Um, and it looks spectacular, but it's very much half a story. Yeah, it's um, interesting so that, that, that was something that. which they didn't make a big deal of at all going in. And it is very much, from, from what I've heard, is very much a two-part film. And it's it ends midway through a story, which is, there's not much of a resolution. No, right? no, I didn't think so. But at the same time, I'm, I do absolutely want to see part two. So I think it just got greenlit yesterday. <laughs> That's a bold move, right? Let's make a massive exactly. multi-million pound sci-fi movie with no resolution and there might never be one. That's Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was a big risk, yeah. but it seems to have paid off. So no, I would definitely recommend seeing it, but just be aware that it is half the story yeah and you'll have no, to wait I'm, until 2023 I'm to see the very excited half. i know that's that's i kind of wish i wish stuff like they would do it like the the last two matrix films or the end game um infinity war stuff where it's like they film them back to back and you got yeah you got your six month wait but it's only six months and you know it's coming so you don't mind it and yeah it's yeah two years a long right. time but i mean i will definitely watch it because um i read the book a while ago and uh yeah it's uh it's is it, is it as unfilmable as, you know, did it still hold together, you think, as a film? But was it, I know you've not read the book, but did it seem like a kind of mishmash or a, a clunky no, adaptation? No, no, like I told, it, it very much formed the 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 world very well, I thought. But I would be interested, actually, to read the book now to, you know, the very distinctive characters in the book. So I'd be interested to see how they're described in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know what's taken from the book and what's part of Villeneuve's imagination, but um, definitely worth definitely worth seeing. Nice. I would recommend it. Nice. Um, but anyway, we're being sidetracked we because being sidetracked. we're actually on to talk about this week's great guest. It is a great guest this week. We're chatting with Mr. Stuart Turton, who is a well, who is Mr. Mr. Stuart Turton? He is Marco, a former journalist and the author of the award-winning genre smashing, sorry, genre mashing. And nice. smashing. And smashing. The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. The second book is The Devil and the Dark Water, which came out just October last year and became an instant smash hit. And uh, yeah, it's a really it's a really fun chat we have with them. Um yeah. it's a great some great stories you had about pre author days, which yes. I'm still laughing uh-huh. at was thinking about. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Camels and shotguns. <laughs> yeah, that's the one that comes to mind, yeah. <laughs> Um, no, it, it's a really fun chat and really interesting chat. Stuart's a lovely guy, and um, it, yeah, just I would say a really unique uh, approach to writing mm-hmm. uh, in that he hates it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not just it, writing, but, but being an author and life yeah, generally. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, you'll understand what we mean when when we get to the interview. But uh, it's he, yeah, he. He is very much someone that, that doesn't want to be pigeonholed. Um, yeah. And, you know, his books are completely unique, I think, both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm already looking forward to his next book because yeah. they really are uh, great reads. Um, but we will 
jump straight into the interview now after a quick advert for our page one notebook, the new version of which should be out hopefully uh, very soon. Don't see it. We're just awaiting the printers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest. But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember... Every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be an author? Was that always the goal? Sort of. It's really weird. Like, I I kind of started writing for myself when I was, like, 10. And I think I've told the story elsewhere, so I'm really, I really do apologise if people heard it before. But I... My neighbour used to bring around stacks of Agatha Christie books. That's how I got into reading and writing in the first place. And they came every week and I'd read them every week, four or five at a time over about two years. So I was about 10 or 11 years of age. And then eventually I got to the last one and I was like, well, the rest of them, but there's no more. They're, they're finished. And I, was like, I, I don't understand what that means. What do you mean they are finished? <laughs> but there'll be no more. And I'm like, I'm still not getting it. And they're like, the author died. So two things happened. One, <laughs> I had to reckon with the concept of death at 10 years old <laughs> and two, that this thing that was like just part of my life for two years had gone away mm-hmm. and would never come back. And I think somewhere in that, there was this idea that, well, if I could write them, I'd never be without them again. It was a very strange sort of 10 year old thing to think. It's like, well, yeah. I'll just do it. So that was, there was a kind of a flag planted in my future. And it wasn't like I said to myself at that point, I want to be an author. I want to be a writer. There was none of that. Like I wasn't going to university thinking I'd make a career in writing. I went to study law. Um, It was just that in the distance, I always thought at some point, that's what I've got to do. I've got to write one of these books. And it didn't happen until I was, I think I started writing when I was 34 or something or 35. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I just never got around to it. 
And, and I think I'm right in saying that you, you spent a year working as a teacher in Shanghai and then you were a technology journalist as well and a travel journalist. Was were, were those sort of, especially sort of journalism side, was that sort of a tentative approach to, towards the writing side of things? Mm. What happened is, I mean, you mentioned all the nice jobs. Like before that, I've done every <laughs> every terrible job you could do before I started getting to the good jobs. Like I did everything because I left university and just started traveling because I didn't know what to do with myself. So I would just take any job I could to sort of keep traveling, to make money and keep traveling. So I like I cleaned toilets in private airports and picked bananas. And I worked on a goat farm in the Australian outback, which was the best job I've ever had. I got to ride around on a quad bike and shoot a shotgun at marauding camels. <laughs> everyone assumes, everyone assumes that story's made up, but it completely isn't. It was the best job ever. Are these wild camels that are just... Well, yeah, mate, the biggest biggest herd of wild camels are in Australia because they were taken out there during the mining boom uh, to cart goods up with the mines. And then when they got the camels, when they got used to them, they just like let them loose in the wild and they bred out in the wild and they got this massive marauding heap of camels in the Australian outback that no one does anything about because no one goes out there. And being uh, Aust- being in Australia, they're probably like developed into poisonous, evolved into poisonous <laughs> beasts or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mate. They can bounce and slip up trees. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. Like, yeah. It's like Gremlins 2, the new batch. It's like with camels. Um, so they're out there and they needed people to sort of guard the farms, the goat farms out there. So you have to, there's helicopters flying around and they call you and you bomb out on a quad bike and you shoot a shotgun in the air to scare them off before they hit the goat farms. And that was that's my job. So all they, of that. Are the camels hunting the goats? Sorry, I'm fascinated by this. Are they, are they, hunting, are they hunting the goats? Are they, are, they, are they trying to get too close to eat the goats? What, like Predator? Yeah, <laughs> they evolved to become this basically the dominant species now. Yeah, yeah. They just feed them. No, they just they maraud, so they quite literally maraud in huge like packs of hundreds, and they don't they're not Jeez. paying attention to where they're going. They're just like it's like it looks like um, birds in the air when you see them from above. They're just swerving and moving and marauding, and they just if wow. they aim, and they just don't stop. So if they aim themselves at a goat farm, they just trample the fences and trample the goats and just maraud through it, and then they're gone. So you've got to kind of herd them off before they get there. Uh, nice. In it, though. In it. That is <laughs> my weirdest job. But we'll have to move on. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll be here for absolutely forever. They, um, to answer your question, no. I What happened was... I realized quite early doors that a lot of the place I went, especially in South America, I traveled South America quite a lot. And there was always an English language page at the back of the newspaper, which was like news for English language speakers, because there was quite a lot of foreign language teachers and bits and bobs around. And I used to just walk into newspaper offices when I was traveling and say, hey, do you need someone to write something for that page? And sometimes they didn't, sometimes they didn't. And uh, I just really enjoyed that work and just figured, and kind of when you've traveled for five years, you're not good at anything. You have no experience. And all your friends are like, they've been lawyers for five years. They've been bankers for five years. They've got mortgages <laughs> and cars. And you get back with one shirt with 20 holes in it. <laughs> and like five quid for a taxi. Like that's, so I got back and had no discernible skills. So the only thing I could do and the only thing I could show were these pages. So I ended up sort of like falling into journalism and then that sort of stoked up my interest in writing. And then I wanted to get better at the craft of writing. And thankfully, in my first jobs, I was surrounded by brilliant writers. So I was constantly sort of egged on. I constantly wanted to be better and do it the way they were doing it. So, um, yeah, there's just a lot of influences in that part. And the the, the first book that you did, did, did write was The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. And and obviously, I mean, you kind of mentioned Agatha Christie 
uh, link and it's it's clear that's obviously something that you really do love and that shines through in 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 the book I think and is that something which you know you said you were traveling and you've come back and you wanted to get back into writing again and was that the idea that was always in the back of your mind something to do with that kind of locked room mystery type story yeah exactly so I've done um, I tried to write it when I was about 21 I think 21 or 22 and it was just, I think it was at university, and I just one night, one probably drunken night, I'd been like, oh, I might write that Agatha Christie book now. I mean, she wrote, <laughs> she wrote 60 of them. How hard can it be? I've only got, like, a law dissertation to write. So I wrote, I think, about 20,000 words of the shittest novel that anyone has ever put down on page, the absolute worst dross. And it was just... It was just every Agatha Christie trope mashed together without thought or finesse yeah. or... And it wasn't doing anything with them. It wasn't trying to elevate them or subvert them or sort of pay homage to them. It was just them. It was exactly as she would have written them, but just badly. Um, so a couple of things happened then. I realised that, A, I didn't know how to write a novel at all. And, B, I didn't have any good ideas of my own, which would probably be a problem if you're going to be a novelist. You should probably have some ideas of your own, I suspect. <laughs> um, so I just kind of put it to one side. And I kind of was, I was thinking about it off and on over the years. Like, it wouldn't be every week, but, like, every couple of years or I'd just be like, oh, I wonder if I should go back to that. And then you do that thing of being like, but what do I go back to? Do you have an idea yet? Mm. No, I haven't got anything. And then I would just wander away. And I was having a nice life and I was doing interesting things. So it wasn't it wasn't foremost in my thoughts. And then I was living in Dubai when it happened. And as I said, I was at 34, I think, or something like that. And I was living in Dubai. I'd finally built myself like an incredibly nice life. Like I was earning really good money. I was a travel journalist for the airline Etihad um I was writing that in Plate magazine which was basically they sent you on a holiday for two weeks of every month. that's all, that's all wow. I had to do and I just had to write some words about it that was it I'd met the love of my life the girl my girlfriend now my wife everything was going exactly where I wanted to be and then finally I had the idea for this goddamn book <laughs> and like and the thing is it just completely derailed me because I wanted to be like I'll just write it in the evenings but that's not the way I do anything like mm. nothing in my life if I do things I, I full throttle it I just hurl myself at the wall until either the wall goes down or I collapse exhausted in blood. Like there's only two ways. So writing a book had to be that. So I convinced my girlfriend after six months after meeting her to be like, hey, look, how would you feel about abandoning all of this great stuff and coming back to England where it rains all the time and we won't earn any money so I can write this stupid book that probably won't get published. <laughs> what a sales Wait, When do you leave? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, Stu, I've been waiting for you to ask. <laughs> Every girl's dream. I know. So, and but God bless her, she said yes. So we went travel. <laughs> we left Dubai. Um, I know we stayed in Dubai for like another six months or something, and some money. We went travelling, and then yeah, we came back to London, and we got the crummiest little one-bedroom flat, and it was above a children's nursery. So we literally children screaming downstairs. <laughs> And the smell of dirty nappies wafting <laughs> up the stairs as I was writing. I, I, I had we had no money because I was freelance. I'd just gone freelance journalist. I would take three or four articles a month, enough to pay my bills and go for a pint with my mates, and then I would spend the rest of the time on the book. And it was just, it was just horrible. <laughs> it was just really <laughs> for two years. It was dreadful. Um, but thankfully, it worked out. Yeah, it, it did indeed. But but it, it, what was different in that approach? You know what. What made you think, right, I can now write this book at that stage? Uh, I was a better writer. I knew that what gradually happens through a career in journalism is you you go in and you're very, you're very young and you're very raw. 
and you're surrounded, if you're very lucky, you're surrounded by really, really good writers and you aspire to that. And journalism is quite an open profession with people either praising you or criticizing you. You're, mm-hmm. you're always on you're always on the receiving end of one or the other. Um, if you've done a good job and you're around the right people, they will tell you you've done a good job. If you've done it badly, they will absolutely tell you that as well. Because the idea is it's not a nurturing environment. It's so much as a sort of like, if you want to be better, you've got to be able to take mm-hmm. criticism and learn from it. And that's what you grow up with. So I saw myself getting better because I saw the praise beginning to outweigh the criticism. Eventually, the criticism started to go away and it started to become, and then there's a few awards flying around and suddenly you get to a certain level with it. So I knew I was a good writer in journalism and I knew I was doing good pieces of, even then I was doing travel journalism, lifestyle journalism, tech journalism. And I seemed to be able to turn my hand to whatever piece of writing I needed to. I could adapt my style quite well, my voice quite well. I seem to have a bit of technique and an ability to sort of critique my own writing, understand where it was falling down and what needed to be done. And as I say, once I was in Dubai, I had the idea. So the idea for Seven Deaths arrived and I'd never had the idea before. And it arrived fully formed and complete and it felt really thrilling. It felt really exciting and it felt like it was dragging me along behind it. It truly did. It didn't feel like something I could sit on. It felt like it was going and I went with it. And it, it felt so... I felt so energized by it that I began to get terrified that someone else would write it before me. And that would be the worst thing I could possibly imagine was having this idea, not doing anything about it for two years and then seeing somebody else write it. Yeah. Either better or either worse. Either one would have been devastating to me. So, and in a funny story, actually, I met an author um, at a party a while back who said that they'd submitted exactly the idea for Seven Deaths to the publisher. But it was two years after Seven Deaths had come out, and he swore blind that he'd never heard of Seven Deaths. And his agent was like, "Yeah, you might want to read this. It's a really good idea." But so my my nightmare was to be in that position. So yeah. it was that it was that combination of having some belief in my own ability to write it and actually having an idea to go and write. Mm-hmm. And obviously, um, it, it's a book that you know it, it's it's very well structured and everything. Are, are you someone that? that sits down and plans out a story like that in detail before you actually start writing it or do you have the vague idea and see where it goes no i have to plan so i plan everything the only thing i find is the characters like the character depth what they like what they don't like um in the writing because i need to have them talk to each other to do Mm -hmm. that so i tend to seven deaths for example i planned every two minutes of everybody's day all the way through that novel even the secondary characters i had maps i had notepads that was huge it took me three months to plan that book and when I started writing it, I started just, as I say, mashing my characters together in scenes just to see how they'd react to each other, mm-hmm. what sort of things would come out of their mouths. And through doing that, I massively overwrote it. I had to throw a lot of that away, but I got to know who my characters are. And I thought that was, I thought that was inefficient. I thought it was like a kind of rookie mistake to make. But then I did exactly the same thing with my second book. In fact, on my second book, I made exactly the same mistakes, plus a few extra ones that I made on my first one. <laughs> So now I'm kind of at the point where I'm like, oh, that's just the way I write. As inefficient and infuriating and slow as it actually is, that is how I write books. That is kind of just what I do. Um, so there's kind of like, it makes me feel better about Seven Deaths and really terrified for the rest of my career. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, a book like that, it's a, it's a great book and it's a, it's a really, it's a book with layers and it, it peels away slowly over time. And obviously you've talked about the planning and stuff, but the editing, I imagine, of that whole book must have been, Quite a process. I mean, I, I'm assuming that if, if it had been a book that I'd written, I would have, it would have spent, it would have taken me so many edits to 
mm. make sure the plot flowed properly. There was no mistake. You're going back, putting red herrings in, and that you know was it a long process of, of the drafting process? It's funny what you mentioned about red herrings because I don't. That's not something I do. So what I generally tend to do is instead of having red herrings, I tend to give all of my characters. I treat every one of my characters as though they're the protagonist of their own novel, and I try to make sure that they do. In my head, the novel could be reorientated around them and it would still okay. hold up as a novel and it would still work. Because I feel sometimes red herrings, Christy popularized these in the sense that like they're just things that go nowhere. Mm-hmm. They're just things meant to and they let you into the idea that someone's reading the mystery. They're there to deceive the reader. They're not really there to deceive the detective because there's no real reason why a detective would stumble across a piece of ribbon on a bush in a forest, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. there for the reader. And that always slightly bothered me about those, even though I love them, that stuff. So what I do instead is I tend to, I just give every one of my characters, primary and secondary, plot lines, stories, goals, secrets to keep, things, objectives to reach. And the idea for me is that a detective isn't reacting to red herrings. They're just bumping into the wrong mystery. They're bumping into the wrong story. They're solving the wrong problems. And they've got to do that. They've got to wade through that to get to the main mystery. Which explains why every book I do, Plans at 19, comes out are about 130,000 words. But it's... Um, well, I was, I was all... going to ask, like, does that does that in some way... And, and going back to what you were saying about, you know, have it, writing your characters, speaking to each other to, to understand them. Does that ever... Do you ever bump into something through your characters that think, oh, well, I'm going to have to change what I had planned here because this is this would happen? Yeah, so it happened quite a lot in... It didn't happen so much in Seven Deaths because that day was so metronomical. It mm-hmm. happened, like Everything about that interlock and clicked into place. And if something happened that I didn't think a character would do, what I would generally try and do is change the character around that plot point to make it something the character would do, um, which is a bit of a fussy way of doing things. But because of that novel was working with Agatha Christie tropes anyway, a lot of the characters were tropey. Um, there was always something within them that was supposed to slightly undercut the trope or surprise you in the trope. But like fundamentally, you had the characters who would turn up in one of her novels, and that was the idea. And because I knew that going in, even if I didn't know the depths of them, I understand roughly where they, what hole they would fill in my story and how they would move it along, what their skill sets would be. When I was writing my second novel, Devil and Dark Water, that one was the one where I was more focused on character because I'd already done uh, the plot and the sort of the cogs and gears of a massively detailed plot. And I really focused on character for Devil and Dark Water. I wanted that to feel like you had this group of people who really knew each other and you sort of invest these relationships between people. I almost wanted you more on the page. I guess this is what literary fiction does quite a lot. Like I kind of wanted you on the page because you were interested in what these characters were going to do rather than where the plot was going to take. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that one a lot. If the, the plot didn't obey these characters and these things that I was finding in these characters, I would change it. So so one big example in Devil was that originally Aaron Hayes, who is the protagonist, was really the protagonist. He had like 90% of page time and all the other characters were kind of like floated around them or they would come into the story when he went to them, for example, or when they had something to deliver. And what I discovered through writing Aaron was that he wanted to be a sidekick in this story. He wasn't a sort of like Watsonian character to be Sherlock who wanted to be a Sherlock. He was quite happy to be Watson. That's where he wanted to stay. And every time I tried to push him forward into that Sherlock role, he didn't want to take it. He kept pulling backwards. Whereas Sarah Hayes, who was this noble woman with a secret, that's initially what she started as. She wanted all of that. She wanted yeah. all of that plot. She wanted to be making progress. So she started taking that bit of the novel away from him. So he pulled back and she pushed forward. 
And I ended up with the relationship in the book that's there right mm-hmm. now. But that was found on the page as I was writing it. And I had to adapt very quickly and sort of like change the. I say react very quickly. I don't do anything very quickly. <laughs> I reacted very slowly and with a great deal of inefficiency and hooked <laughs> a lot up and eventually got what I needed to be. But that was really, really about the characters telling me what they wanted to do and what they were comfortable with and where they fit. And it was, it was, th- that was thrilling to write. Mm-hmm. That's that's interesting. I, I can I totally agree with the way you say that. And and looking at the two books, I I would I, I I can totally see what you mean when you say the Seven Deaths is very much about the kind of the plot of the Davy setting, the mystery of what's going on here. Whereas Devil in the Dark Water is much more character based. I thought and it felt much more about there's a lot of characters in a small in a small room on this on this ship, and it's all about them and their relationships, which was the more important point than the plot was almost. And, and yeah, and that, that's an interesting way of putting it. And I hadn't actually thought about that until you say it. But yeah, it, and it's it, it's quite interesting the way that you kind of, did you gravitate towards that naturally? Or, or did you, did you was it a conscious choice to be like, I actually want to focus more on the character stuff than, than the, the twisty plot stuff this time? No, no, everything, hopefully every book I do is entirely deliberate. Um, I know the goals I want to achieve with each book. I knew what I wanted to do with Seven Deaths and how I wanted to shake that out. And I knew what I wanted to do with Devil. And part of that is that I didn't want to be the guy who wrote the Eight Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, the Nine Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. I didn't want to get suckered or accidentally wander into being that author Mm. who everyone gets to expect things from. I wanted to write, and I truly do mean this, I would love if I could take my name off my books and just have them so that I, my greatest compliment is that you would never know that the same author had written those books. And that if I, whatever at the end of my career comes out, how many have written, they feel completely different to each other. Like you're just trying to stray into different genres. They've got different aims. They've got different goals. The way they're told should be completely different. Um, that's why I think I'll always write standalones. I don't think I'll ever do a series because mm-hmm. for me, it's about where can I go with this story? Like what other genres can I pull in and mess with and play mm-hmm. with? And, and it is about... And, but you do have to be very deliberate with that because if you're going to give yourself the freedom to go across almost any genre you want with your story, it's almost impossible to stop going across all of them and then you end up with a mess. Mm-hmm. So you've got it's almost like deciding when you've got a painting what colours you're going to use and how big your canvas is going to be and then being able to stick to that. Um, so, yeah, and again, Devil was a reaction to Seven Deaths and my third book is going to be a reaction to Devil again. So they're always hopefully going to be pinballing off in different directions depending on what I did last. And how how does your um your your agent and your editor? F- f- I mean, obviously, the, the, both books have been great successes. So in that sense, they're very happy. But normally, uh, certainly speaking to people on the podcast, it it you, it's difficult for an author, even if they want to write a different type of book, th- there can be a pressure from outside to say, right, no, no, you, this was a huge success. You need to kind of try and repeat that. I mean, have you always said, no, these are, I'll always be wanting to experiment and change with every book that I want to do, that I write? Yeah, exactly. So when I went in to meet my agent, I told them straight off the bat what I'd be doing. Um, I was upfront and clear about it. When I went in to meet the publisher, I was upfront and clear about when they ask you, what do you, you know, what do you want from your career? What do you think mm-hmm. it should look like? I told them straight off the bat, I thought it was easier to be open and honest. And I, I get the desperation to be an author. I truly do. And I understand kind of the compromises that can lead you on. But I was very lucky to be older when my book was published. Mm-hmm. Like I'd done a lot of stuff. I'd had a lot of careers. It wasn't 
quite as important to me as maybe it would have been if I'd been published younger. I was a bit more sure of myself and what I wanted and what would make me happy. I've been down roads where I've compromised and done things that don't make me happy. I know how that ends and I know what it looks like. So I was kind of a bit more aware of the pitfalls. So I just went in and told them straight away, this is what I want. And I was very lucky that there was a few publishers in for Seven Deaths. So I could say, look, if it's not going to be you and this is not what you want from me, in yeah. my head, I can go to this other publisher yeah. or I can, yeah. and maybe they're going to offer me a little bit less money, but for what I want to do with myself, that would be a better fit because it is, as you guys know, publishing is about relationships. It's about relationships with your reader. Yeah. It's about relationships with your publisher, your editor, with your agents, all of these people, more so than almost any other industry. It is about you are the product and you are your own thing. You are subjectively the thing that they have to market. They have to get you, they have to like you, and that, that means they have to like your product. They have to like your books. They have to like the stories you're trying to tell. I think if you don't get those relationships right at the beginning, you're possibly buggered forevermore because I've heard stories of agents dropping authors or authors having to fire their agents because they had this argument about what they do next. And from my perspective, that should never be an agent's choice. That should always be the yeah. artist's choice. That should, and you, because you're the one taking the financial risk. It's your livelihood if it doesn't mm-hmm. work. It's your, and if you're willing to take that risk because you believe in your book, that should be entirely up to you. Like nobody should be second guessing what you do with your talent. And was it easy for you to find an agent with the, with Evelyn Hardcastle? Was it a long search, or did it, did you find your agent quite quickly? No, I was very lucky. I found my agent quite quickly. I sent the. Um, I sent five submissions off. I got three requests for the full read. I got two meetings off the back of those. Wow, that's fantastic. uh, One was, (laughs) you say this, one was with an agent (laughs) who just didn't get it at all. I had the most awkward meeting, and it was the first meeting I took as well. And it was with a very big agency. And I was like, I'm made. You know, you do that thing. You're like, got an agent, I'm made. Yeah, 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 great. It's all smooth sailing from here. And that's what I did, like an idiot. And I went into this meeting with her. It was very clear straight away that she'd allocated me a certain amount of time, that I wasn't her priority that day. I wasn't her priority in that meeting. But first of all, so it was a slight sense of like, oh, this immediately feels a bit off. And then she started, one of the first questions she asked me is where I saw Seven Deaths sitting in a bookshop. Would it be in the sci-fi section or would it be in the crime section? And it was quite clear she'd rehearsed this line before I ever got there. And I was like, well, it's both. That's what I did. I wrote a novel that crosses those genres. And she's like, well, you can't really do that because bookshops won't take to it. Readers won't know what to do with it. I think we'd either have to strip out the sci-fi and make it a more purely Agatha Christie, or we'd have to dial down the Agatha Christie and dial up the sci-fi a little bit. Which, again, is like somebody, you know, it's like handing a priest your newborn and then them drowning it. Like, it's just... I was like, well... (laughs) This doesn't make any sense. So I walked out of that meeting incredibly demoralized and thinking, I mean, again, I knew I had the second meeting yeah. with Harry. So it was easier for me to say, that's definitely not going to happen. That's not, I can't do that. I've worked too long and too hard and given up too much to write this book for someone to say, I don't actually want that book. What I want you to yeah. do is rewrite mm-hmm. that book as something else completely. Um, so that meeting was terrible, but I was incredibly demoralized because I was like, maybe this is what the other agent, Harry, 
Mm-hmm. And if he says the same thing, what do I do then? Where yeah. am I? Like, will I be able to stand up to him and say, nope, like you're taking this book on as it is and you're going to try and sell it as it is. And then am I brave enough to set the repercussions if he says I'm not doing that? And then I go back to the drawing board and send out more submissions. Yeah. And I hadn't settled that for myself. I'll tell you right now, I'll tell you honestly, I, I didn't know. Walking into that second meeting, but thankfully, it was just a different vibe straight away. Harry was totally on board with what this book was and what it was trying to achieve. He had the benefit of having talked to Alison Hennessy, my editor at Bloomsbury. He'd had a meeting with her about a week before, mm. and she pretty much said she wanted my type of book. She was sick of the, the books, that were, the crime books that were flying around at that time. Uh, she wanted something uh, structurally inventive. She wanted something that messed with genre a little bit more. She was basically describing Seven Deaths. Mm. So when I went into that meeting with Harry, he already knew where he wanted to place the book, like, and he already had that in place. He yeah. knew who she was, what she liked, how she edited. He knew that we as people would be a good fit. He knew that we as a writer and editor would be a good fit. And then it was just a case of um, polishing the book with him uh, and then going to her. So it was incredibly, I feel so lucky. It was an incredibly straightforward journey. And 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 in the end of the day, when it came to marketing a book like that, because um, I think you're totally right, um, it's a book that does straddle two, two genres like that. And, and how... What was the marketing in the end? Did it did it did they embrace both, or 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 did they did they swing one towards it, or, or or did they do two campaigns that kind of emphasised both sides of it almost? No, they were very good. So they what they initially I think the initial marketing line was tonight Evelyn will die again, and that was the marketing line. And it was it didn't have to be any more complicated than mm-hmm. that. The slogan that they would throw around was the one that I'd taken to Harry when I was trying to get an agent, which was the Seven Deaths is a um, Agatha Christie novel in a Groundhog Day loop with uh, with body swapping like that was and mm-hmm. they took that and then they worked with that and they built the campaign around that. Um, they tried to keep it. I think the worry they were always worried that the book could sound a lot more complicated than it reads. That it could come across as being something that was um, too hard to take in and too hard to be enjoyable. Mm-hmm. So they kept the sort of. Um, the actual marketing, the imagery was very classic. It was very Agatha Christie. It was those sorts of colours. It was the grand sweeping staircases yeah. and it was yeah. very art deco. And um, they played it absolutely blind there. And then, again, I think the market was ready because when they went to bookstores, when they went to, you know, they went to Sainsbury's, when they go to like the supermarkets and all that sort of stuff, everybody was just excited. They were just excited to have this. They I think people at that point wanted this Agatha Christie story back. They wanted it to be slightly changed and slightly mm-hmm. updated maybe and have a few extra elements. And I felt like I was kind of serving up exactly the meal they were asking for at that time without ever realising that what I was doing. So, yeah, I was very, very lucky. It, it, is, it is funny that, that you know, there, it, there can be that sort of serendipity that you've written exactly the book that, that people are you know, yeah. Harry said that he had been speaking to someone that was almost describing your book before you actually saw him. So it, it, it can happen. We've had other people on that as well, that the timing just happens to be perfect and you, and it gets in front of the right people at the right time and it, it, it explodes like this book did, obviously. And, and That's it, why. Sorry. I mean, so sorry to interrupt. No. When I go and do panels and people talk about getting into publishing and they talk about writing, and I do have to be blunt and do have to be sometimes dream smashing and say that like 90% of this is luck and mm. it really is like does your book you know how much of a book an agent reads and how many submissions they get mm. per week you are looking for an agent who is looking for your book exactly at that moment 
in their life. And if it's the day later or the day earlier, sometimes you can miss it. Mm-hmm. And that can happen to any number of great authors. I'm surrounded, a journalist, I'm surrounded by brilliant authors, brilliant writers, don't have books published. And I've read the books and, the, you know, maybe something in the book is lacking, maybe a certain spark that's not there. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a very really competent book that just has never found the person who, you know, would represent it brilliantly. Yeah. Or the market, this was a book that would have been popular 10 years ago and the market's moved on and maybe yeah. it'll come back around to it. So all that side of it is... It's nothing you can control, which is why I'm constantly telling people not to try and second guess the market, not to be worrying after trends or trying to, unless you can write a book in two months and get it turned around in two months, like there's no point. Mm-hmm. You've just got to write and be brave and hope for the best. And, you know, it's, it's, it is awful for that. It is an awful thing to chase because again, you may not get there and it may not be any fault of your own. Yeah, is it the number of books that are based, based on vampires, et cetera, that came out after Twilight? You know, it's, it is, it's, it's that, it's the, you know the problem with trying to chase that trend is that you're always going to be two years behind it at the very yeah the, it's not it's not a, it's up. not a quick process no, the publishing exactly. industry so yeah, yeah exactly and you're also putting yourself into a race with like 500 of the runners yeah, yeah exactly yeah. yeah and you don't know you don't know how fast you are in that race you might as well create your own damn race and be the only person in it yeah. and then at least you've got a good chance of finishing it <laughs> so, i like yeah. that that's exactly right yeah mm. and and obviously the book then went on to be this massive success um won the Costa Award, long-listed for a few of the Dagger Awards at the Crown Writer Associations. It was shortlisted for the New Writer Award at Specsavers and so on. I mean, countless awards it was either nominated for or won. And was that, and that must have been an amazing feeling and that real kind of validation that all the hard work and the fact that you put your foot down and said, no, this is what it, the book is, I'm not going to change it, that you were right in the end. Uh, no, because I'm a sociopath. <laughs> um, I don't... I don't enjoy things. It's it's a terrible thing I've got. <laughs> I, I'm always, I, that's awful. Apart from I shooting shotguns it. at camels. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, some things. Like, just, once you've had that, that thrill, nothing quite. Nothing quite <laughs> that's it. Everything else has been a come down yeah. since then. <laughs> oh, yeah, there was a Costa, but did they give me a shotgun and a camel? I don't think so. Um, no, it's, it's really bad. So terms of professionally, I've always been the same way. I'm goal orientated, so it's always the next thing. So once the thing has happened, I didn't enjoy um, getting an agent. I didn't celebrate that. I didn't enjoy getting published. I didn't celebrate that. I didn't enjoy uh, the Sunday Times. I, you know, mm-hmm. the awards. I didn't. I don't enjoy any of it. I'm not. I don't. I don't seem to be capable. Um, it just makes me think that I've got to work as hard the next book to repeat the success. That's all it does. It puts me on an ever faster treadmill. So I tend to not celebrate and just put my head down and just get on what I'm doing. That's perhaps another reason why I'm so committed to writing novels that are completely different to each other, because at least then I'm always being judged on entirely independent and new mm-hmm. criteria. Um, the other problem I have a little bit is that I don't actually enjoy the act of writing very much. So actually sitting down in front of the computer for eight hours a day, it's not my personality. It's not what I like doing. I find it quite tedious. So I've got to really G myself up to sit down and write every single day. Like it's either got to be something that's happening on the page that I'm really thrilled by. It's got to be a writing challenge that I'm, you know, excited Mm. to take on. Otherwise it's just, it's a really bad day for me. It really is a slog. So that combination of things sometimes just gets a bit on top of me where I'm just like, no, no, no. Like it's, I'll just go do this. I've just got to get on with it. Like, just don't, don't bother me with that. Or what, like even the awards and stuff, it's just like, I, yeah. I know it sounds incredibly ungrateful, but it feels sometimes they can feel like a weight on the back rather than a sort of freeing thing. I, I mean, so 
I mean, it sounds like you don't like the writing part of it very much and you don't like the winning the awards part of it. What, what is the part of writing that you do enjoy? Uh, the money. Uh, the money's great. <laughs> really enjoy the money. I, uh, no, that sounds terribly ungrateful. And that's not what I mean at all. I do like, I'll, truthfully, like, I like being paid for my work. I enjoy, I was a journalist. There's no money left in journalism. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a sustainable long-term enterprise. If you want to be a writer, uh now there's only a few things where you can write well and make money and Mm -hmm. this is one of them or scripts is another and they're all incredibly hard things to do i do weirdly find it gratifying when i get a royalty check through the post that's a big thing for me because it means i can provide for my family it means i can carry on doing this the way i want to be doing it It gives me the flexibility and the freedom to do what i want work the hours i want to be working yeah um not have that sort of other presence of my shoulder, sort of a manager or second job or whatever those stressful things could be. It's a very liberating thing and it makes me think, oh, wow, okay, this was, I made the right choice by pursuing this because look at the things it's given us, like look what it's allowing us to do, look at the place it allows us to go. Um, it's a very, I see that it's a very cutthroat way of looking at the industry, but it's the bit of it that I most value. The rest of it, and then I really enjoy, I actually do enjoy readers. Like I do enjoy getting out there and meeting readers. I do enjoy kind of chatting to them about the books because everyone, I'm constantly fascinated by how many different interpretations of my books people have Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. what they get out of them, what they find in them. Like Seven Deaths was a completely Marmite book. People either loved that or they hated it and that was it. There was no middle ground, none. There was no three-star reviews of that book. Mm -hmm. It was either five or one, that's all you got. I once, one of my very first reviews of Seven Deaths while I'm on this was a, somebody wrote a blog post and they tweeted me and they tagged me in it, which is very bad form. <laughs> nice. But, but they had an entire blog post. They'd set it up for Seven Deaths. There was no other reviews on it. And when I clicked on Seven <laughs> Deaths link, there was one word and the word was turgid. That was it. <laughs> the entire review of Seven Deaths in one word. And it was spectacular. Um, so... And then I thought, you know, that's I've written a sci-fi. I get Christy, I can kind of understand how that happens. And then Devil comes out and does exactly the same thing, exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And I, I really love that. I'm not, I'm not, I don't find, I, I'm not hurt by negative reviews. They're not a thing that particularly bothers me. I usually find them quite funny. I usually find something valid in them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just people who want to be authors and are pissed off that they're not, and you are. Like that happens quite a lot. But even that is like kind of amusing. So I like seeking out readers. I like talking to them. I like seeing those opinions. Um, I feel it, I find it fascinating that people can are willing to engage with my books intellectually and genuinely sort of like find theories in them, dig into them and think about them seriously. The very first meeting I went into about Seven Deaths with a publisher um, and my agent to be fair, where they were talking about my book like it was a book and these characters were characters in a book. And like, it blew, that blew my mind. It still mm. blows my mind when people talk about it seriously and they know things about the book that you've forgotten, and there's things that have stuck with them are lines, pieces of writing. And that's the other thing I enjoy. I love I love the when you find the line, the one line that perfectly expresses the thing that was in your head, and you've got it out there on the page. And the lines that you had to work for and find are the lines that you find on their own at 2 o'clock in the morning. I love that bit of it. So even though I don't like the actual act of writing, I love when you get that line and when somebody else two years three years down the line says i love that line and you're like oh yeah because i enjoyed writing it as mm-hmm. well like it was yeah. really gratifying for me and and how you've obviously said that once you've done something you're goal oriented and you've got your got got once it's done you're moving on to the next thing i mean how far did you already have the idea for 
um, Devil in the Dark Water uh, when Seven Deaths w- was sold? Were you already thinking or even working on Devil in the Dark Water at that stage? No, I wasn't working on it. I had the idea. I had them. Um, I mean, I've got about 25 ideas at any given time. I think like all of us, like the, the ideas aren't the problem. The time is the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll never have enough time to get all these ideas out. I knew when I finished Seven Deaths, I'd had the idea. I the the record of Tavia, which is the real life incident that inspired um, Devil, I'd had that in my head since I visited an exhibition about it when I was twenty three, so that had been rattling around, and I'd kind of always thought it was interesting, and it had grown more and more on me. And when I was writing Seven Deaths, I was kind of thinking about that a little bit. Um, I don't know why. I think I was kind of looking for characters in it a little bit, and sometimes mm-hmm. that happens as well. You're kind of inspired by real life stories, go and find characters in there that maybe you can pull into your work. So it was in my head and it grew and grew. And when Seven Deaths did well, and I knew that I wanted to go in a completely different direction to it and completely wrong foot people and not not write the same thing again or even play in the same paddling pool again mm-hmm. if I could. Um, this was the idea that kind of most forcefully barged itself forward. And it was the idea that seemed to have the most canvas to play with. I could go in the most directions. I could find an interesting story and heap most elements on top of it and Mm. um because you know what it's like sometimes you have an idea and it feels quite constrained it feels like that's all that the idea will ever be it doesn't get any bigger than the initial idea what i like are the ideas that have got some flex in them that feel like they can be bigger that they can swell up like a balloon that they can go in different directions so devil devil had that for me and the more i started writing it the more it expanded to the point where I ended up writing the wrong book first and had to throw it away and then start again after a year um, because I truly screwed it up and gone in the wrong direction from the off. So like, I lost about 120,000 words to that book. Oh, my God. Wow, jeez. <laughs> and I, I have to ask that, I think I read somewhere, and you said that the, the real-life story that you based The Devil in the Dark Water on was too horrible to actually enjoy reading, and I just had to know what the actual true story was. Oh, in a very slight pressy, in 1629, the Batavia was sailing back from um, Batavia, which is now Jakarta, all the way back out to Amsterdam. It had about 300 passengers on board, and it it veered off coast because of a mutiny. Uh, it sank off the coast of Australia, but they had no maps of that area. They didn't know where they were. They had no navigational aids. They were just lost. So remarkably, the ship gets wrecked, they lose remarkably few people in the wreck and they manage to get most of the survivors off onto a string of very tiny islands. Um, the captain, the first officer, and a few other people go to get help. They get in a rowboat and they set off. This should be the point of the story. It's one of the greatest nautical um, journeys in history. He manages to find his way from these islands. He doesn't know where he is using celestial navigation and gets himself back to Jakarta and he does it in two months unerringly. Um, and by the time he comes back, he realizes that he'd left the passengers in the hands of a sociopath, history's first recorded sociopath, possibly. He raped, butchered, murdered men, women, children. Like There was something like 120 people left of the 300-something survivors. Jeez. And the thing that makes it truly horrific, apart from, obviously, the rape, murder of children, <laughs> um, which nobody's going to make a comedy act out of, is, <laughs> is that these islands are so tiny that there was nowhere for them to run. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was nowhere for them to go. There was no escape. Um, but out of that story, there's amazing stuff. So 
my character, Aaron Hayes in Devil, he's based on a real life character who was on that boat called Weber Hayes. And the Weber Hayes, he just appears in history on this boat and then he disappears from history after this incident. He was um, he was a soldier in the army. He was a good soldier by the sounds of things, a good officer. And this wasn't taken for granted in the VOC army at this point. Um, they were usually bad people, paid very badly, running away from something. But he was a good officer. And he managed to protect a lot of these survivors and anyone survived at all because of the heroism of this man and the organisational capabilities of this man. And he managed to set up a fort. He managed to improvise weapons. He managed to sort of like defend them from what was happening. And um, yeah, it's a it's a fascinating story filled with sort of cruelty and heroism, terror. So I recommend it. I wrote a big, long piece about it for the Sunday Times, I think. So you've got a subscription to that that's floating around, but it's, it's really worth checking out. The real story, not my story. My story's all right, but like the real story is <laughs> no, brilliant. We recommend checking out your story as well. But uh, taking it, writing something that's set in that in a, in a historical time period like that, um, but, you know, fictionalizing it, but taking elements of real life events and, and, and characters and stuff and, and dropping them in there, is that... You know, because we've had people that have written historical fiction on the podcast before, and they always, they certainly the ones we've spoken to have, have hewn very close to. You know, they want to be true to certain dates and and things that happened and all this sort of stuff. Did did you feel any obligation to do that, or because it was a fictional story, you were ultimately telling you would take what you wanted and and leave the rest. Yeah, very much. I mean, I didn't, setting out, I didn't realise I was writing a piece of historical fiction. That's mm -hmm. not what I was doing. It wasn't mm -hmm. in my head. I didn't realise it was historical fiction until people started calling it historical fiction and it started appearing in the historical fiction sections of bookshops and things. Mm -hmm. I was writing a murder mystery on a boat. That's yeah. what I set out to do. Everything else around that can go and hang. Um, I'm always committed to the story. I'm always committed to my plot, my characters, what I'm doing. Everything else is window dressing. If an if a war needs to be moved, I'll move it. If the this thing wouldn't have happened, yeah. you can tell the moment for me that I decide in Devil, they all speak in a very modern yeah. way. They speak, yeah. and it's very fast and it's very sort of jokey and bantering. And I have no doubt that people in that period were funny and fast and quick witted, but it wouldn't have been written this way. No. Uh -huh. And once I decided to do that, it's not a piece of historical fiction for me anymore because I'm already not obeying the tenets of historical fiction. So. I threw away, I was. I happily threw away that stuff and never thought too much about it. Mm -hmm. I think people sometimes equate that with having not done research, which I take umbrage with, because I did so mm -hmm. much research. I mean, I traveled for this book. I went out to Amsterdam. I climbed aboard the real-life Batavia that was the inspiration for my boat. Wow. They've rebuilt it in Amsterdam. You can. It's a floating museum now. Cool. I went out there for two days and asked questions about everything that I didn't understand, which was everything, <laughs> everything about nautical seafood. I just didn't, I don't know anything. <laughs> So I asked the volunteers questions about it. I sat in the British Museum for um, a couple of weeks reading like passenger manifests and diaries and journals of this period. I, I tried to understand as much about the history, the customs, the beliefs, the superstitions about this period as I could. And so much of the richness of that story came out of that research. But the moment you say, oh, you know, I just I tossed things away or sort of redid wars, people are like, no, oh, so you didn't do any research. Like, no, I kind of think <laughs> whether straight out, you can't toss things away unless you know what you're tossing away, right? No, that's yeah, right. You, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You've, you've got to know everything to sort of like, you know, use 
Because the worst thing you can do, and I was taught this in journalism as well, is make something feel like a Wikipedia article. There's no point doing all research. No, absolutely. Yeah. Research in. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. I, I, I definitely found, I definitely didn't think you hadn't done, done the research. I came across like someone who had done, mm-hmm. and and that was the, the joy of reading it was was almost learning bits about how the ship worked, etc. It, it reminded me a little bit of the terror, the Dan Simmons book, mm-hmm. in, in the sense that it's, it felt like a very you know research book on the ship, and I was learning about how a ship like this operated type thing at the same time I'm enjoying the story. So that, I, yeah, I thought that was, that, that was really well done. I thought the terror ter- was an interesting comparison because I came across that after I finished Devil. Because what generally happens is while I'm writing a book, I won't research anything that feels, oh, sorry, I won't read anything that feels like it's in the same playground as mm. what I'm writing. Because usually there's better ideas in there or equivalent ideas and you don't want to steal things. You just don't want, you've got to go on your own track and believe in it. Yeah. Uh, so I came across the terror later and I was, I was like, oh yeah, this is, I can see how this is somebody doing the same thing that I was doing, but something slightly different. He's taking horror, pure horror, and doing yep. pure horror with yep, it. Exactly. But he's equally throwing things away. And then I read at the same time The North Water, which is a wonderful book, but far more historically rigorous mm. and sort of far more interested in... Because I thought I was getting a murder mystery on a boat out of The North Water, and I wasn't. I was getting a boat book. It's very much about a bad man on a boat, but it's fascinated by boats. Mm. And like they would say, again, to take this genre and see people coming out different ways is just brilliant. Yeah. Um, and now, of course, um, Seven Death has been optioned by Netflix for a seven-part series. Um, and am I right in saying Devil's Dark Water has also been optioned for a TV show? Um, who, by the guy, is it Howard Overman, the guy who did the yeah. Water World show? I mean, that must be, well, I would say that must be exciting, but obviously knowing you now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> it's really annoying trade. It's horrible. Um, yeah, no, it's great. Like, it's really lovely. I because there isn't, I know that there's an audience out there that doesn't read books that I think would enjoy these stories. Yeah. So the fact that it's going to go in front of these audiences, and again, to come to what I consider the commercial realities of publishing, if it goes on telly, I earn more money, mm-hmm. and sort of like that's a very net. Again, that's a success for me. That's something. I have a three-year-old daughter. I like buying her shoes. <laughs> um, shoes are expensive. It turns out, and she needs a lot of them. So like. <laughs> More television, the better, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's nice seeing... Again, it comes down to that conversation with readers almost. It's nice seeing someone take your work and your ideas and adapt them for a different medium and prioritise what they think is important yeah. and kind of almost retell the story. It's fascinating is, to watch happen. Is that something that you're you're quite happy to stand back from, you know, you know, because we have had people on that have had adaptations done that, changed the source material quite a lot and they clearly weren't that happy with it but but i mean um are you happy just to say well i've got the book there the book is there and off you go and 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 tell the story yeah because i don't once my book is finished i don't really feel any great attachment to it which Mm -hmm. is i know a lot of authors do Mm -hmm. i don't my book goes out into the world and i'm i kind of you know I dust it off and move on. I think, again, it goes back to journalism background. I used to write so many articles that you write them, you send off to the editor, they get edited, and yeah. they're gone from you. There's nothing you can do with them. So I've got the same thing. So if somebody else wants to adapt my book, I've, I I can't see how that could be done in either case. Mm. If I thought yeah. that Devil and Dark Water would make a good television series, I would have written it as a television series. Same mm. goes for Seven Deaths. So that needs a different set of eyes, a different set of expertise. It needs somebody as competent in that area to do that job. Again, I bring it down to the reader thing. Every time 
somebody reads my book, they've got their own projector in their head. They see the book completely different. They prioritize different things. I direct, they're a television studio production company. That's just a reader with a bunch of money. That's all it is. Like, it's just one more reader making the book for themselves. It's no different to what the readers are doing, which is why I don't get on board with people who get really upset when the books are changed. It's, you've read that story already. Who cares? Like, you know what that story is. Like, you enjoyed it once in the format in which it was intended. And now it's been changed. It doesn't do you any harm. Why did you want to see the same story exactly (laughs) again on the screen? I can't, I honestly, it's one of those strange things. It doesn't make any sense to me. The sort of like the anger about that is very strange for me. I quite like the idea. I know that Seven Deaths is going to have some big changes, for example, um, to the source material, because that's an incredibly hard book to put on screen and it Mm -hmm. requires changes. It's a very white cast. It needs some changes for a modern audience. It needs to be more reflective. So they're going to do that. It's a predominantly male cast. That needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing that done. I'm kind of interested to see how that affects the story and what changes that will force. Like for me, that's going to be the most extended. Part. I mean, I'm not going to watch it, but like I would be, <laughs> I'm excited to see them do it. You're not going to watch it? Fuck no. Like... <laughs> Sorry bleep it um <laughs> no i wrote it and i have no interest in going back to a story that i wrote and i live with it too long to have any interest in it any longer like i say i'm interested in the changes and somebody else can tell those to me but and i, I like talking to the writers i like talking to the screenwriters yeah. and the screenplay writers like those mm-hmm. guys are cool and, but beyond that i'm not terribly interested what's next are you, are you working on or or has the third book been uh, uh, handed in oh bless you god bless you um at this point my publisher doesn't ask if i'll meet the deadline they ask how many i'm gonna miss uh that is i missed five for devil and dark water right we're hoping to miss fewer than that for this one but probably not many fewer um i i write slow and my books are complicated and i just sort of like keep writing them until they finish and that's what's happening with this one and I, you, I make a lot of mistakes and I overwrite huge amounts so even if I say to my agent look mate I'm 60,000 words into this he knows that 30,000 of those will get tossed yeah. in the bin at some point so it's a really the goalposts are ever changing um, so that's been written now it's due towards Christmas it definitely won't be delivered by Christmas but hopefully <laughs> hopefully by March-ish Okay, Hopefully. let's say March. Yes, cool. Well, oh, we look, we look forward to it whenever, whenever yeah. it arrives. Yeah. What was the last book that you read? Oh, I just finished. Oh my god, the Power of the Dog, um, which is I can't remember the author's name. It's a sort of western. And weirdly, very coincidentally, it's been turned into a movie with uh, the Sherlock Holmes actor in it. What's his face? Benedict something. Cumberbatch. All right, all right, okay, cool. Cumberbatch, and it's a Jane Campion gig. So Jane Campion. Oh yeah, yeah. That. I was listening to that on the radio the other day. It was meant to be. It got really good. Uh, oh, did it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The book is the book is grimy and difficult and it feels horrible, but it, the atmosphere is so thick in it. Like I really recommend it, but it's not a pleasant read. It's not an easy read it's got there's a lot going on in that book so i just finished that um yeah and it was i don't do i recommend it sort of yes <laughs> sort of <laughs> uh, what about the last film that you watched oh um i don't actually watch a lot of films um 
purely because again three-year-old daughter so by the time <laughs> i finish my work day as i said i'm going to go and pick her up now i will play with her until i put her to bed which will be about half seven then we'll cook some dinner that'll be about half eight nine ish me and my wife will have a chat and then we'll go to bed and that will be out that's our life presumably for the next 400 years <laughs> <laughs> so we don't get to watch we i have i was watching the the Netflix documentary on the Chicago Bulls, The Last Dance. Oh, um, that's brilliant! Yeah, yeah. So I was not a sports that. fan at all, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah, so I've been watching that in sort of like ten-minute chunks on my lunch break, and I've really, really loved that. The very, very last things, a super quick fire, either or, and I always say there's no right answer apart from one. So the first one, uh, <laughs> Holmes or Poirot? Oh, Poirot. Yeah, Holmes was a dick. <laughs> uh, TV or cinema? TV. Uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? Oh, I'm a night owl who's been forced into being another good guy. Again, <laughs> aforementioned horrible three-year-old. A fancy restaurant or takeaway? Oh, takeaway. And last one, real book or e-book? Oh, real book. Real book, yeah. yeah that was an incorrect answer there, Stuart. But um, I suppose if a man who writes historical fiction like this, maybe real book is <laughs> not an unsurprising answer. <gasps> Well, it's because the real books are like, it's purely because I like holding real books. I, I like the feel of them. I don't like reading them. I hold them in your hand while you try and read them as a pen. I'd much rather read on the book, but I like buying real books and feeling them <laughs> and putting them on my shelf and seeing them. So yeah, I think as long I as you think, like reading ebooks more, then I believe that's an ebook answer. So I, I'll, I'll take that answer. I'll go to that point. What, what I like is that I seem to have sort of like insulted but also support both of you <laughs> simultaneously. <laughs> well, well, well that's excellent. Oh, that was a really fun chat with Stuart. Um, really, I, I really had an excellent laugh with that. And really interesting how from the get-go, he was just, you know, cars on the table. I'm not doing a pigeonhole genre. I'm not going to be a certain type of writer. And and that's quite a bold move, I think, for a first-time author to do that. Absolutely. I mean, very brave. And, mm. you know, it's interesting that he was saying that he would rather his name wasn't on his books at all, which is, uh, you know, not what many authors would say, but I totally understand that in that he just wants to write the stories he wants to write and he doesn't want yeah. people coming to a book with an expectation of it being something because yeah. they read his last book. Um, and, and and interesting how, you know, we had those meets, those um, meetings with agents and it was all to do with how do you market this? How do you sell this? To, what, mm-hmm. Do you lean into the Safa? Do you lean into that, the Christie side of it? And and again, another bold move to say, actually, no, it is what it is and I'm not going to compromise it, mm-hmm. you know, for sales. And, and obviously it's worked out great for him. And, and, and that is something, that's a tricky thing when you write a book like, two books like he's 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 written where they're not easily put into a box. Yeah, I think that's right. But I mean, personally, is that not what you want in in Absolutely. new new books? You don't want Absolutely. to read the same old. Uh, there is no, a comfort, totally. I suppose, in in reading a certain type of book and knowing what you're getting. But oh yeah, yeah. Also, when you discover a new voice that's telling a a brand new type of story, it, it's a great thing. Totally. What's the point in new authors and new new voices coming into the into the field if they're going to write the same stuff as already there? You want them to experiment and you want mm-hmm. stuff to be different. And, and and I get it from a publisher's point of view that's tricky because they're mm-hmm. all about the bottom line and marketing and sales and that. But that's their world, and I think it's nice to know that as an author you can focus on what's important to you and let the financial stuff be left to 
the financial people. Definitely. Well, I mean, thanks very much to Stuart for, for coming on to the podcast. It, it, it was genuinely great fun speaking to him. And we actually yeah. spoke to him again in person at the Bloody Scotland Festival. We did, and he was, it, was, it was a very nice chat. Uh, we continue yeah. to talk about uh, camels and shotguns and various other <laughs> <Yeah>. things. <laughs> um, but no, it, it was great. So I highly recommend picking up either Seven Deaths or uh, Devil in Dark Water if, if you haven't read those. Uh, they're they're completely different, but yep. both great reads. Um, and we have another great guest next week. Yeah, next week we're chatting with Blake Crouch, who uh, might be best known to you as the author of the Wayward Pines trilogy, which was uh, adapted into a TV show called Wayward Pines in like, 2015 or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also written a number of standalone kind of sci-fi novels, Dark Matter, Recursion. Um, it, it, I always think of him as a kind of modern day Michael Crichton. Yeah, it's novel. that sort of um, yeah taking taking a, a, a scientific idea and sort of putting a spin on it, but it's still set in the set in the present. Yeah, uh, exactly. Or or in the case of some well, of his books, yeah. it, it seems like the present, <laughs> but without too many spoilers there. But no, um, yeah, really interesting books again. And um, it was really good to chat with him and find out about, you know, how he does get these ideas and, and turn them into uh, these really thrilling stories. So yeah, please do yeah. tune in for that one. Um, before we go, as ever, I will ask that if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating and review on your favourite podcast app uh, as it really helps us climb the charts and then continue to get great guests onto the podcast. And of course, if anyone has any questions or comments, uh, nice ones only though, please do send them into to uh, podcast at rightgear.co.uk or you can send us a tweet in the Twitter machine, which is at right underscore gear. But otherwise, have a great week and we'll see you next episode. See you later.